I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance. What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is even worthy of a second chance? My name is Raphael Rowe. My guest today is John Crilly, a man described by the police, politicians, the media and the public as a hero. With two other men, John stopped a terror attack on London Bridge last year. That would have been 2019. The attacker had already stabbed and killed two other people and wounded three others with two kitchen knives. The terrorist known as Usman Khan was also wearing a fake suicide belt, but John didn't know that when he used the fire extinguisher to stop Khan before the police arrived and shot him dead. John himself had recently been released from prison after serving 13 years of a life sentence for murder. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining me today. I'm all right. Thanks for having me on, Raphael. John, let me start by by asking you about that that awful day. Um, and I hope it's not too painful to talk about this, but um, it, it's it's so important. What what can you tell me? about the fact that you have been described as a hero. Why have you been described as a hero? Walk me through what happened that day. Well, I don't know how much you do know about the, the day itself, but obviously it was um, for Learning Together, the Cambridge initiative that had been bringing into prisons up and down the country. And that's where I met, met him uh, in prison. And uh, they invited me to an event when I got out to uh, talk about everything I'd learned from there, everything I'd got from there, and possible ways for us to go in the future. Um, so, yeah, I just turned up for the day to be a part of that and to show my appreciation for everything they've done for me. And um, I was having a bit of a bad day. Uh, I was in a bit of a mood. I didn't really want to be there. Everything was going wrong that could go wrong. The machines weren't working. My bags had snapped. So I was, yeah, pretty <laughs> in a bit pissed off, really. But... Um, yeah, so we got to Fishmongers Hall where the event was. So, because I went in a good mood, I went immediately outside for a quick smoke on the bridge. And then it dawned on me about the, the attacks there previously. And then, so anyway, I went back in. I went in for about 10 minutes upstairs to where the party was being held, the conference. And I just sat at a table for, on my own for a bit. So let let me just 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 walk myself through this. So you've attended this conference. Where where are you based, John? Are you based in London? I'm in Cambridge now. So you came down from Cambridge to attend this conference that was being organised by Learning Together, and that's a, is that a charity that organises events uh, around rehabilitation programmes for for individuals like yourself? They have ten prisoners who've never been to university, probably, and never even done education studying, actually doing a module with Cambridge students, first-year, second-year students. So for, like, for me personally, I, I opened my eyes up to what I could do 
that I, I am just as good as these people who had always never even imagined speaking to. So yeah, that's the idea of it, and now it's spread up and down the country. What was you studying? What 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 was the modules you were studying? The module I done with Cambridge was a criminology module on a trust effective practice and um, all that stuff. And this conference that was taking place at Fishmonger Hall in in central London on, on London Bridge, this was a celebration of the success, was it? Yeah, five years it was going now by then, yeah. So, yeah, successful five years. And like I say, they like including everyone in it. So ex-prisoners come together and really put ideas together and that are going to get used. So it's really good. So despite the fact you were having a bad day on this particular day because of numerous things, you were sitting, you were saying, you were sitting in the conference after lunch on your own waiting for everybody else to come back in. Pick up the story from there, John. Yeah, well, well, when I was in prison... And I met Cambridge a lot. I've managed to get me a mentor to help with me further studies and things I'm doing in the future, who's John Samuels, QC. He's the next head of the parole board and all that. So although I've I've had into um, communications with him, I've never met him face-to-face, and I I knew he was at this event, so I was looking out to see him, really, to have a discussion with him, and he just happened to come in first on his own, rooting around the table that I was at. I didn't know it was him, he didn't, and then we just, it dawned on each other who he was. So we got up, I got up and went just a couple of yards outside to have a chat with him, and sat and mate who was in prison with us to come and have a chat with us. So there was just the three of us on, outside, like on top of the staircase, staircase is massive, comes round both sides, onto the veranda at the top, outside the big room. So we just there having a chat for a couple of minutes, and then all just screaming just started going off. And then it just all went nuts. When you say scream, for, for 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 those who don't know what what happened, tell me what happened. Initially, we were looking at each other, going, "Is that someone messing about? Is it someone playing around or something?" But then, obviously, the, the pictures and it got a lot more like guttural, more animalistic. It, it, it something was definitely going on. Do you know what I mean? You, you could tell it's not it's not people playing about. <laughs> So obviously, so I just went down the stairs to see what was going on to like, look, if you got to a certain angle, you could probably look down to see what was happening. And just when coming down, like round the stairs, we seen like Saskia lying there, bleeding. And then literally a couple of metres further on was this Osman Khan with his knives and his bell and just going nuts. When you looked round the corner, Saskia was lying on the floor bleeding. This Usman had already stabbed her? Yeah, clearly, yeah. There was another lady, like lady in the distance behind him, in where the reception area was, curled up in a ball of blood, with blood around her as well. She'd been stabbed too? Yeah, yeah. And then obviously Jack was wherever Jack ended up, but that's like for the inquest and all that stuff still. And you saw Usman at this point, did you? So you saw the man that is... Um, I, I I don't think he's been tried yet, is he? So I think it's still subdued to talk about whether he's guilty or not guilty. I don't know what the situation is. He's dead. Yeah. Let's just talk about um, what happened when you saw what you saw. So you've popped your head around the corner to find out what this kind of screaming was. You saw... Uh, a woman lying on the floor bleeding and another one curled up in, in a ball bleeding. And you saw this man, Usman, with a knife. What did you do then? Well, obviously, he was jumping up and down, jump, bouncing about, sort of like, his adrenaline must have been clearly going. But then, but immediately I see another lady who I know well in Cambridge, just behind Osman, like walking towards him. And it just happens, it's her best mate who's at the, in the back, killed up. So I think she's just trying to get there to help him. Like, she's going to try and reason with him or something. So my immediate worry is her. So I, I scream at her a few times. She don't, she's just, like, in a trance, walking towards him. So I have to get a grip of her and, like, throw her up the stairs behind me. And people call me a hero for, obviously, I was fighting for everyone in there, but I was fighting for myself as well. It was clearly he's not just going to let me walk out. Do you know what I mean? So it's just a matter of having to... I don't know, I was first on the scene, so I don't know, I had to de- sort of dealt with sort of thing, I don't know, I couldn't run away. Well, I probably could have done, but 
I don't know. It just happened all so fast, so I've got a grip of Vernon, when I turn around, he's like swinging at me now with his knife, and I have to keep jibbing out the way, but the only thing that says a left turn, there's nothing, literally nothing there to pick up, so I just picked the left turn up, which is a big, hefty thing, and I'm just waving that, trying to keep him off me, and I just throw it at him, and that cracks in pieces, he bounces back and then comes back at me, it's just like in and out all the time, and then I picked the left turn up again, now it's in pieces, and, and hit him with that. And then once, I'm, well, every time I'm with nothing in my hands, I have to just keep bouncing around him away, around, keeping, trying to keep my distance from him, but obviously trying to distract him as well. Was you his sole target at this point, or was there other people around? He knows everyone's up the stairs behind me, and obviously he's, we're jumping around for a couple of times there, and we all with him for a, few, for a bit of time. And um, it's while I'm... Well, I'm disarmed and I'm looking around for something. He's, took, he's obviously seen he's not getting past me, so he's run directly back to the girl on the, who's curled up. And I can see, obviously see him going for it, so I'm just running behind him. I've got nothing. I don't know what I'm going to do, but he just, he just jumps a twice right again in front of me. And there was just some big ornate like chairs that I picked up and hit him with that, and then he bounced off again for a bit. And it's at that point that I've been looking for something else and... The other two guys have come down then, I think, with the, with the tusk and that, which has allowed me to go and look a bit further when I, when I found the fire extinguisher. So you've managed to push him through your sort of retaliation. You've been able to push him further away from where everybody was, down the stairs and almost out of the building. When I left him, he was, still, he was right in the reception bit where the tables was when you come in, like, where you immediately come in, yeah. And that's where he was when I come back with the extinguisher, but the other two lads were there then. Oh, there was another lad, one lad that I remember with the tusk. And he's just gone for the door, hasn't he? When I started spraying him with the thing. What what did he have in what did he have in his hands uh, in, in all this time? He had a knife taped in both hands and uh, the belt round his waist. That was it, really. When you say a knife taped to his hands, you mean he had the knives in his hand and then he taped them using some sort of masking tape? I'm, I'm convinced he was taped up, but I'm wondering how he's taped both hands at the same time, do you know what I mean? So I'm not sure, but he had, definitely had a knife in both hands. Two big kitchen knives. You say he was wearing a belt. What, what's the significance of the belt? The suicide belt on it was made up as a suicide belt. So you saw that he had these knives and this made-up suicide belt, and yet you still felt brave enough to go for him, John, and stop him getting to anybody else. Again, it's not about... But I, there was, I just didn't see any other choice at that, at that particular instance. The fact that he didn't blow, blow it more or less immediately, I'd started, the more it went on, the longer I thought it was a black, because I started shouting immediately at him about the belt. When, when I initially started, like... Communicating with him, it's obviously it's shouting, but I'm not going, what, like, what are you fucking doing? What the fuck's going on? He's going, I'm going to kill you all, I'm going to blow you all up. Referring to the belt, so I've gone instinctively just gone, well, fucking blow it then. And obviously he didn't. And then the longer that's gone on, I'm talking probably seconds, 20, 30 seconds, but in that space of time, it seems like ages, I'm just thinking, he's blagging. He's not even got, a, it, it's fake or something, I don't know, it's that. But the more it went on, yeah, the more I'm thinking that's not real or he would have blew it. But you didn't know for sure whether it was real or not. Initially, no. no. So you've managed to force him by using the fire extinguisher out of the, the conference main door onto the street. What happened next? So, yeah, and obviously he's getting a couple of prods from the Narway or to us now as well. So, yeah, he's, he's just bundled out on the street and we've he's started running up the, up the bridge. And obviously then we can see people coming down and just started screaming at them to get back and that, which they did. And then we've just been weaving round him. And obviously if you watch it, we just happened to, to land. Luckily, really, I've sprayed him, he's nudged him with a pole and he's gone down and the other fellas just walloped him. And then we all just on him in a second, obviously getting his hands for the, the belt sort of thing. You've managed to, to sort of corner him. I, I have seen the video, and for anyone who hasn't, it's on YouTube, and it shows the very moment that this Usman is forced onto the bridge, and you can see, can't quite make out who's who, but you can surely see you are the one with the extinguisher. So you three guys 
and there were some other bystanders and now people videoing it and everything. He's gone down on the ground. Um, you guys have sort of managed to, to sort of placate him, if you like, just for a few moments. And then the police turn up. We just jump on an arm, on an arm each to get, and get the knives off him in it. And all the other lad got his own fruit off the street and I took the knife off him. Um, turn it on either way and give him a clap of it. It's not big, it's not, it's not big, but obviously in that situation, you, you're protecting yourself. And then I've got rid of that knife and then, yeah, the police was there showing at us to get off him. And we were just obviously worried about his hands and the belt. Obviously, once completely clear, it was fell. So we were just like, can we, if we get off, he's got a belt on and obviously having a little dialogue with the police. I was actually telling him to shoot the cunt. Man of language, so there, but what I've just seen him do, sort of so thing. It, well, I was screaming at the police to just shoot him as soon as he got off, and you'd better shoot him because he's got a belt, sort of thing. And I, I, I'd lost all care for him by that time, do you know what I mean? I just wanted him done. So, yeah, we jumped up, and obviously, there was one lad had to be dragged off because we, we was worried about his hands. And then he just, he just shot him. He was, he was obviously still moving about. Well, he hit him with the tape, they didn't. I like to stress that they didn't just shoot him straight away because I, I was screaming at him to shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. And they did take the time. They did, they did warn him and hit him with the taser at first. And he still kept moving. So, yeah, obviously with the belt, he shot him. And your your concern and, and the guys that you were with who, who, who by this time had, had controlled this Usman or at least pinned him to the ground and disarmed him, um, your main concern was that once you released him and his hands were free, he could reach for this belt that you didn't know was a fake um, suicide belt and 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 um, detonate it, I suppose, ignite it so that it went off and killed you and everybody else around you. That's why you were shouting at the police to shoot him. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. And they did? And did, yeah. Well, well, he was still moving and I don't know what the protocols was, but I assume if he's got a belt and he's, he's moving... Towards it, we have to take him out, I guess. How many times did they shoot him? Do you know? Twice, I think. That killed him, I suppose, for a better word. Well, then, yeah. How did you feel at that moment? Because I suppose up until then, the adrenaline was pumping through you. It was keeping you alive as well as you keeping other people alive by keeping him away from getting at other people. I, I don't know. I was just angry, I guess. Initially, just angry but obviously anyone who's been in prison and done half a course knows it's a secondary emotion so I don't know just probably confused scared confused I guess it's just a mad shock in it now this happened in November last year that the aftermath was that Khan killed Jack Merritt and Shaska Jones and he wounded three others and and so that would have been the woman you're talking about on the stairs Shaska or Saskia Jones, who was the one who died on, on the stairs, Jack, who died at another location in those premises, I think. Um, and this was in November last year. So three people wounded, two people dead. What did you do after the incident, um, John? I mean, the police have shot Usman, the suspected, well, the, the, the suspected terrorist who carried out these awful attacks. And it's a bit of a mad time because obviously they've got a job to do and we we're just like, mind, like, mind your manners. Do you mean get over there? And like, <laughs> just imagine, obviously, there's, there's bombers about, so they're going to be shouting, get the fuck up. Yeah, it was a bit mad. But yeah, they just found us all up and then took us to a, a Salvation Army place or something like that. A big building somewhere, give us clothes and interviewed us. And... Oh, right. So the same day, by the evening, you were back home where... In Manchester? Obviously, I was staying in Cambridge, but I went up to, uh, well, Warrington, actually, to a friend's house to stay. How, how was you feeling, John? This is not something that the average person, regardless of anything else, experiences on a day-to-day basis. You know, you one didn't want to be there in the first place, ended up being there, but then, you know were responsible for saving the lives of many other people, but also had a lot of trauma to deal with after the event. You know, I'm mean, putting you in a taxi, sending you to Manchester may have ended the day, but surely the memories live on. 
No, definitely, yeah. No, it was hard, man. It's and all all the time we didn't know. We we just got told two people were dead. We didn't know who he was. We we, we couldn't see Jack. No one had seen Jack. It, it just started to put literally two and two together, and then it's just obviously I, I see what happened to Saskia. I see the injuries, and all I can do with Jack is imagine what's going on. I can't talk too much about that because it's obviously we've got the inquest coming, but not knowing where, how, it's just, yeah, you can only imagine stuff. Jack, you knew well. Yeah, I knew Jack from uh, more or less the start. Well, I'd done my course with Jack. No, I didn't didn't, didn't do my course with Jack. I'd done my course and then Jack come on as a Cambridge student the next year and I was a mentor from the previous year so I was mentoring Jack ironically enough or that year's students and got to know them all really well yeah and then I stayed in contact when I moved prisons and he was outside helping me finish my get uh, materials for my degree and that and when I got out he come and picked me up took me out come up to my degree ceremony yeah he was a good guy man it's really sad. The the your actions, what you did to save the lives of others, and and, and you, you know, however you see it, people have described you as a hero. I can see it's kind of emotionally affecting you now. Um, but but you've done a brilliant thing, and and um, although Jack and Saskia lost their lives, many other people would have lost their lives had it not been for you and the other guys who did what they did. Um, and, and I hope that you take strength from that as well as sadness from the whole experience. But your actions, John, have been praised by both the police and politicians because of what you did did that day. Does that offer you some comfort? Yeah, of course it does, yeah. But um, I'm just left wondering how much I was praised before it come clear that I was an ex-offender. Cause the praise only seems to last twenty four hours or something. So the details started coming out, and I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit. No, yeah, I do acknowledge the the bit of acknowledgement you have given us, but yeah, I don't think it seemed to dry up a bit when it become clear that we as offenders was involved, sort of stuff. So, and I guess it is hard for them to. I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I know, and I, and it's a shame. But look, let's let's deal with that now. Then, so the 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 reason you were at this conference in the first place is because you'd been released from prison. Talk me talk talk to me about why you were in prison, how long you were serving. I mean, who, who's John Crilly then? If we were to talk about John Crilly before all this, where, where did it all go wrong? Where you ended up in prison, John? I was a spoiled little brat till I was about eighteen. My mum was killed in. a traffic accident I spilled for my partner and my son the same day and I just got lost on drugs from then um, in and out of prison but for over 20 years I was in and out every year three months four months just petty offending I never really dig burglaries because for for one I don't like like the thought of going to somebody else's house I can pinch a car because you know it's, it's outside it's different but so my majority of offending was, yeah, just pinching cars and that, talks and stuff. And uh, I started selling drugs for a few years and got involved in, in that aspect. And at the time in my offence that I got me life sentence for, I, I was selling drugs. And I just went on this burglary as being an idiot, basically. Just being nosing what money that was owed to me. So I had drugs in my How pocket. How old was you at the time? 34, like I say, I was lost, but, but yeah. Um, I went on a burglary with a kid I'd known for 12 weeks. And um, we knocked on the door like you do, there was no answer. And it turned out, unfortunately, he had the victim had tinnitus, so he couldn't hear the door. So obviously he didn't answer the door, we assume there's no one in. We kicked the door in, we go up the stairs into the flat and it, we come across the, the guy sat there, obviously straight away, and panicking and telling him to get out of the house. My co-defendant's adamant he's waiting until he gets someone there. And then 
the guy stands up, the whole one door stands up and the cold defendant punches him once. Drops to his knee, I picked him up and put him on the couch and I left. And yeah, and I got ended up getting arrested for murder. He sadly died. The the one punch. Well yeah, the pathologist said it was no more than that. Or cons- consistent to one punch and hitting his head when he fell, but no more than that. Although if you read the papers and all that stuff, well as you know, the media and crime, but yeah, so I ended up getting arrested for part of a joint enterprise, as you call it. Um, although they, they accepted in court that it wasn't planned. I had no intention to harm him. I didn't harm, I didn't touch him because of my foresight that that could have happened from from a burglary. Before uh, I was as guilty as the, the guy who actually... Through the punch. And were you both convicted of, of murder or manslaughter? Well, convicted of murder. Um, he was convicted as the one who threw the punch. He got 25. He had previous for similar sort of things. And I got 20 for just for just being there, basically, not, not doing anything or reporting it. So that was a life sentence with a recommendation that you serve 20 years and your co-defendant serve 25 years before you can be eligible for release. So, yeah, obviously I, I'm there. I'm obviously still at this time taking drugs. I've used drugs to cope all my life anyway, so I'm not going to do anything different now, <laughs> sadly. But, yeah, it took me four years in a long-term prison to... to to find myself in the block again for, for drugs again, for so-called lads taking the piss out of me, because you know all that comes together and all that is just bullshit these days. But so I just thought I've got to do something different, and I, and I was disgusted by although it was a drug addict, it, it hurt me that much that I could be convicted that people actually think I could go in and kill a seventy-year-old guy. So. I, don't, I always wanted, to, and I knew I wasn't a murderer. I knew I didn't I intend to harm anybody, never mind an old man. So yeah, I always, I, I thought there must, this, there must be a way to get this sorted out because it just can't be right. I suppose I think the best criminal justice system in the world. So I started studying law. Well, I've done a couple of GCSEs, see if I could study a bit. I thought I'm going for law with an eye on trying to sort my sentence out. Came aware of Jengba, the organisation, and I've been with them from day one. And luckily enough, <coughs> luckily enough, sadly enough, I'm the only one who happened to to win the appeal post Jogi changing the law, which is ridiculously unfair. If 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 my if my case merits it as a as a drug addict and living a way of life anyway, there's people I've met who who've never had any criminal records, who've just been on the very fringes of, of, of an offence, a lot less than mine, and, and still locked up kids, mothers. You know, it is, it's ridiculous. Let's come to that. That, that. This is all around joint enterprise, and I, I spoke to Janet, who you know, whose son is in prison serving a life sentence, uh, at, like you, didn't um, take part in the offence. I mean, she maintains he's innocent, at least... You're saying you were there at the scene, but, you know, didn't partake, didn't foresee, ended up getting a life sentence in 20 years. What was it like in prison for you? I mean, because, you know, somebody who's in prison for killing an elderly person can sometimes get a, a, a hard time. Was it difficult for you? Were prisoners kind of understanding? You know what? It's horrendous. It's, uh, it's definitely, they say I've got PTSD now. And if anything, I reckon that's walking about. You know how that is. But you know what? <sighs> I never once got a cap off anyone for it related to that offence. I got a cap once all the way through that system for drugs. Luckily enough, I think, there was enough kids who knew me, who backed me, stuck up for me. But it never stopped me looking over my shoulder for one second. How long did you serve? How long did you do, John, of that 20 years? Just under 14, yeah. Did you have any family uh, and friends who, who were able to support you during those 14 years? Just my sister stood by me, my sister and kids, yeah. That was enough. More than enough. That helped you get through, did it? Oh, definitely, yeah. 
Well, man, the enough, sadly, me and my sister fell out since I got out, and it kills me. Well, you're not the same 34-year-old as you were when you, you, you went in, and I suppose your mentality, your approach to life has changed significantly, as would have done your sisters and anybody else on the outside. It's a very, I know, it's a very, very difficult, difficult bridge to cross together. It was, but yeah. But going back to that, that was hard getting through that sentence, like looking over your shoulder, being in for that offence was horrendous. You've got people you've known all your life, like look, half looking at you sideways and you know what they're thinking. You won't say it, but like I say, Luckily enough, I had enough good lads who, who stuck up for me, and you know, you know, given you, you were a repeat offender, a, a, admittedly a petty offender, drug user, you know yourself, John. I suppose. Tell me if I'm wrong. That if it would have been the other way round, and somebody you knew ended up in your situation, would you have ended up looking at them sideways when you were in prison? Almost definitely, yeah. Which makes it even harder for you to cope with that. Definitely, yeah. Uh, it's just the, the ethos of the prison these days, isn't it? But, but never, I would never do it again. I think it's interesting for people. Maybe you could help people understand that point. I think it's interesting that people don't realise that there is... I, I, I hesitate to use the, the word hierarchy, but prisoners often do categorise the, the nature of a crime. You, you, you know, at the bottom of that would be the nonces or the, or the sex offenders, and, and that category has its own category from child paedophilias, etc., um, murderers, robbers, and everybody's classed in a different category. Um, what, what can you tell people to help them understand why that is? Because the fact of the matter is they're all prisoners. Some crimes are more hideous than others. Of course they are. Um, but why do you think that is? I, I don't. I just think it's the. Oh, you know, there was the is it the mentality, the IQ of the place. The it's a very enclosed. If you, if I could see back when I was a kid that how small the world of criminality is and how much bullshit is, rather than this idealistic world I had images of and of of togetherness and all for one and all that above everything else all in it together sort of thing. It's just nonsense. It's the outside world, outside of that, where all that's going on. And, and you just can't see it. It's sad. I don't know, man. It's just... So those 14 years that you did of the 20-year sentence, that, that was a tough 14 years for you, John, until you found the opportunity. I mean, I'm sure during that time you did other things, you know, whether it was to benefit yourself in workshops, tailors, um, or to support your drug habit until you were able to kick that habit. Um, were you on drugs in all that time? I mean, while you were in prison in order to bury, you know, and cope? First four years, yeah. And then only because of, of maybe times on the wing where it had dried out and I'd had to experience reality and getting little glimpses of it through no choice of my own life, but getting glimpses of it and having a taste of it and seeing it's not that bad, it's, you know. And then obviously I think the the circumstances I found myself in just come above everything, everything else, the drug habit included, the the, the the injustice that I felt. As a, as, an ex, as a criminal and a drug addict, the, still the injustice I felt at, at the sentence and the way you could just be treated like that by a so-called criminal justice system, criminal justice system that known throughout the world, it just blew my mind. So I think it was just the, the desire to fight that more than anything. And this was your desire to fight the fact that, despite the fact that you were on the burglary, you had no intention of harming anyone, didn't harm anyone, didn't hurt anyone. Unfortunately, the guy that you were with did and um, I, I don't know whether your opinion is like many's would be that he deserves then to be serving 25 years or at least a long prison sentence for what he did do but your argument is that it was unfair that someone like yourself as has happened in lots of other cases ended up getting a, a lengthy prison sentence when you know all you were doing if all you were doing is the right phrase was trying to make some money to support your drug habit 
you, you, you know, treatment is probably what you needed more than 20 years. I was just trying to, I wasn't even trying to rob the house. I was just trying to get money off guys who was robbing the house, who always messed up. I, oh, I was robbing the house, wasn't I? But I had no intention of anything else than robbing the house. Even robbing the house, I was, I, I didn't want to do. I just, just, I don't know why I did it. I just stupidly did it. And then, uh, but as for intentions and, and men's rear and all that, I never imagined even encountering anyone in the house and not immediately running out, instantly running away. The thought that you were staying and confront someone, especially an old, he didn't look anywhere near something, but anyway, anyone in the house just doesn't compute in my head. So then I was just caught in a dilemma of, of, of leaving straight away, but looking back over my shoulder and looking at this little idiot who was screaming at the guy. So do I just leave and leave him to it, or do I try and persuade him to leave and stay a bit longer? And then it fucks your withdrawals up from the... Yeah, it was a no-win situation, I guess. And gladly now I've got some sort of... Although the sentence they give me to substitute, it's not only two years difference. It's all politics. And, yeah, hopefully... The judicial do the right thing and get rid of the substantial injustice test and bring a bit of justice to our criminal justice system, which is just nonsense at the moment. So let, let's talk about that. You were able to tackle the, the drug issue that you, you, you were coping with in prison. Um, and so you then started to study the law in order to... Once you saw the light, that is, you've come out from under the the the, the, the drugs you then started to challenge the fact that you had been sentenced to this length of time when you hadn't you know done the the most dirtiest of deeds if that's a way or or you know the hitting of this person who died how would you describe it um what the change in your life i mean what i find fascinating is that at, at one end of the extreme you are vilified for being a murderer and at the other end you are being championed for being a, a hero even if for only very short periods although one took 14 years of your life and is no doubt still a lingering um shadow over you but there came a point and i suppose this is what's important and i think your story is important to to inspire and send a message to, I mean, it does lots of things, doesn't it? I think the first thing is it says to people, if you think you're just going to go into a burglary, nick a couple of quid to support your drug habit, be prepared that things could go drastically wrong and you could end up spending the rest of your life in prison when you thought you were just going to spend a couple of days on a few drugs. I mean, because that's the scenario, isn't it? Oh, it doesn't happen a lot more, I don't know. But yeah. It probably does, John, but not many people want to hear it. It's that same old, oh, yeah, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? It's kind of just an excuse. You did the crime, you did the time, da di da di da But there came a point. Let, let's move on to that because I think it's important. There came a point where you decided you were going to do something different and not just sit in a prison cell, eat porridge and, and, and sort of wish away the days. I think, I think, like I said, I got on the drugs after I lost my mum and all that stuff. And uh, I guess I seem to, I must have accepted that uh, my life was meant for to be shit, that I was meant to be an addict, that I was meant to suffer some way for the rest of my life. And maybe it was, well, it was definitely just another thing on top of another thing. I guess I got stepped on once more too many times than I even imagined could happen. And that once more was, was that was the sentence. I don't know. I guess there's, I reckon the majority of people in prison just want want to change. And I guess it was just the right time. I was in the right places and met the right people to facilitate that change for me. Because I definitely, although it, it has to start with me, it has to start with you as a person. You need help, you definitely need help. And I just happened to go to the right. Gendon Therapeutic Prison was, was an amazing help for me. Obviously, I met Cambridge in there as well, and, and off the back of that, other mentors and just people in amazing places who, if I get my shit together, I could probably go out and, and do some amazing things. I'm just trying to get, like, get my head around everything, I guess, still. I think I'm getting there right now. So hopefully, 
But yeah, I think change has to obviously don't want to sound like it has to come from within, and you've got to start feeling a bit of love for yourself. And I guess I was in a low place for for years, sticking needles in myself for God knows how long, and just and I say that as self harming. I think drug addicts are just self harming on a massive scale. I just think, yeah, you've got to start from within and then you need the things there to facilitate it, to help you to take them steps. And that's where Cambridge came in. So you studied criminology and am I right in thinking that you gained a, a law degree while you were in prison? Yeah, yeah. Got myself a law degree and done yeah, some modules on criminology with Cambridge. Yeah. For a big for a massive part of it was 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 <laughs> Was me learning to to live to what a man was, what what a, a member of society was, the, the the rights, responsibilities, obligations, and all. That's, that was a massive part why I wanted to study it as well. Because I don't know how you get lost in drugs like that. You just you don't know how to live. You just I've never paid a bill in my life. I, I've, I've never lived. I've got I've never communicated with people other than working a score. It's just all been about drugs, or I've just not been interested. So it's just learning to talk again. It's just learning to... It's everything, babe. Yeah, so a lot of the law let me... I've learned me how society works and my place in it and what's expected of me, what to be expected of other people. And, yeah, because of that, what's to be expected of the justice system and the government, and, and it's all just nonsense, but it's all just seems to get through at us and the disadvantaged and that. How they just do what they want. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that that you then um, challenged your conviction or, or, or the fact that you'd been convicted under the joint enterprise. Um, just tell me a little bit about what happened there and, and what the result and the outcome was of, of what you embarked on. Well, it was only through the work of obviously Jambor and some top QCs and that who, who was trying to fight this fight with us. And it's all their hard work. Obviously, I tried to do what I could from inside, right, and the other letter than that, but it's Jengbo outside the mothers and that, who've gone to Parliament in the House of Commons having committees on it and stuff. It took it to the point where the, the Supreme Court had to change the law. They, they'd been using, like I said before, instead of intention and mens rea, that you need to commit an offence. For a secondary party, not even the person who did it, the, the one who's just on the scene... You don't need intent. The intent was done away with, so the burden of proof is lower for the secondary party. It is just made no sense in any world. How can the burden of proof? Our burden of proof is supposed to be on all reasonable doubt. So how can it be lowered in any aspect, in any case? But anyway, yeah. So it's the intent burden to prove intent on the secondary party is just gone, and what they replaced it with was foresight. Could a person foresee this might happen if they go out to do A? Rob a bank and they foresee that they call a defendant and pull a gun out and commit crime C and kill someone. Well, foresight is there could be life on Mars. So I like to look at it. You can foresee the possibility, which is all it is possible foresight. There's possibility of life on Mars. So there's no disproving it. You can't disprove it. Obviously, you're going to get found guilty. Obviously, you can foresee this happening and that happening. And that's exactly that. Madly though it sounds, that's what they was doing for 32 years, year after year, month after month, life sentence after life sentence, kids, mothers, locked up with no with no evidence. And yeah, so the, these mothers have got, got it to the Supreme Court and they've had to admit, they've admitted, yeah, we have been doing this. But instead of giving everyone an appeal who deserves one, we're going to put this substantial injustice test for anyone who, who's, who's appealing out of time, sort of like, after the fact. And you would have been one of those cases, appealing out of time, substantial tests. And somehow, I, I was about 12th in the line, I think, who'd gone up for me appeal, and they've all been knocked back. And then, yes, yeah, somehow, I've, I've been, I've satisfied this substantial injustice test. So, obviously, on my offence, there's no weapons, there's no planning, there's no guns or... So they've not defined what the test is, but I've passed it, so you can only work it out off mine. I don't know, but it's impossibly high. No one else has got past it. Well, I think one of the kids got past it, but again, that was just luck. 
it, it's to some degree a small comfort in terms of vindication because, as you say, you had no intention of harming anybody, um, but somebody did die you, 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 and you were there when they did die. Um, but your case is the first case in this country where the Court of Appeal have overturned a joint enterprise conviction. Am, am I right in that? It was the first. I don't know if any of it followed, but it set a precedent. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, in brackets. I'll just give you a little story that maybe we might we haven't got really time. But when I was in Glendon, you have social days. You can invite dignitaries up, probation officers, solicitors. I wrote to me then judge didn't know who he was. Just thinking if he can see me now from the guy he sentenced, maybe he can help me get when I come for parole. He can put a note in. He's seen this, seen that. I'm just thinking how I can get out. What ways I can get parole and stuff. So. I wrote to the court, the court wrote back saying you can't make your social day, but he would love to come up and he judges in fact Sir Brian Leveson. So I was like, oh shit, right, okay. And uh, so he's come up to the, the jail for the day. Uh, I've hosted him on the wing Q&A, he's coming to me at therapy group, he's coming to my cell, seeing my law books and all this, we've had a, a convo. And then when he's left... We communicate, I kept in communication with him, telling him about my degree and all that, how I was doing. If I was fucked up on the drugs, I, was, I, I never did anything from him. And then, yeah, he becomes head of the appeal court and my appeal goes in. And, uh, yeah, I'm the only one who's got it. Brackets, close brackets. Do you think your um, wooing of him in the prison influenced that decision? And do you think you overwhelmed him with... With such nice charm. Could be, couldn't it? So was your conviction reduced to a lesser offence or was the, the sentence reduced? Put me back on for a retrial and um, kept me remanded. So I was swinging about here every fucking jail trying to finish my degree off. But anyway, yeah, I've gone back to court for uh, the day of the retrial and I've got my kids there and all that and... Solicitor saying, just take the manslaughter, you'll walk out. And I really, I still to this day regret it. I should have won the trial. He had nothing. But I had my kids telling me to come home and that. So, yeah, I pleaded to the manslaughter and he gave me 18 years for manslaughter. And won't let me walk out the court where we had Jenga in the film queue and my kids and that. He sent me back to Preston Nick from Manchester Crown to release me. <laughs> so you went back to to the prison and then you were released that same day. Five minutes I was in there and they gave me some hocus pocus, um, what was it, licence and then the morning, I've been out about six months, the morning I'm supposed to be moving down to Cambridge, they come and recall me for nine months for breaking a condition that went on my licence and they've learnt lessons from it. So yeah, so it's still not, it's still haunt me. And I'm still on licence to 2023. What What are your future aspirations then? I mean, you've been through quite a journey. I mean, in, in this conversation, I can see more than one second chance, you know, just the fact that you had your original conviction overturned, the fact that you were sent for a retrial but opted to plead guilty to a lesser charge. Um, so there have been numerous opportunities where you've been given a second chance or taken back. What what are your future aspirations, John, at the moment? So very recently, like as I, you know, I was the other week. I didn't really have any. I was just, I was just still trying to comprehend everything. Or I'll just accept shit's happened and move on again. Like I've done so many times, but I've just applied for some pretty previously to me anyway out of this world jobs. That I would never even imagine of that 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 are around policy making and stuff, with probation and things. So that's where I want to be, influencing things that are going to work on the ground and being on the boots on the ground and that. And there's a couple of jobs that have come up that I couldn't have written better for myself. So please God, it'll facilitate the next step for me, and I can just. 
move on, get a proper job and contribute to society. At the beginning of this conversation, when we were talking about, you know, from villain to hero, if you like, now that you're out, before people knew that you were um, somebody who served a long time in prison for, let's say, manslaughter, because that's what your conviction stands at, uh, regardless of the the circumstances, just for a moment, um, you know, villain to hero, um, do you find it difficult to to have to justify your situation when people say to you, you know, what were you doing 10 years ago sitting in a prison cell? What for? Do you find it's a difficult conversation to have with people on the outside? It is a difficult conversation to have, but I think it's one that needs to be had. And I'm I'm happy to suffer a bit of um, discomfort if it educates someone, if it opens someone's mind that little bit. Then, yeah, I'll, I'll suffer that little thing. Like I say, I just want to try and contribute a bit to society now and, and make the system a bit better for everyone, victims included. Well, you're definitely in the right place, aren't you? Because you've done the crime, served your time, you're out, and you can put your knowledge and expertise to good use. It seems a shame that that you um, spent a lot of time studying law. Um, is that where you're hoping what you've been able to to educate yourself with you'll be able to use that in these policy roles that you've applied for recently you hoping to put that law degree to good use you you did get a qualification let's just be clear there yeah i did get a a degree in law with honours degree but um i do hope to use it yeah but i can't at the moment it's pie in the sky to for me to effectively use it in any way at all but I use it in little bits with Jengbo. I try and use it to a degree with Jengbo. I help them out. But, but yeah, obviously with the policy stuff and that, I'd, I'd like to maybe go a bit further with that and get a bit into the legal stuff, yeah. But at the moment, just one step at a time. I don't want to be aiming too high and just... Well, look, let me ask you some of the killer key, key killer questions that, that, that are key to this podcast thing like um what does a second chance mean to you john because i suppose you've given people a second chance they could have been killed by a terrorist you've overturned your conviction and been given a second chance at um you know reducing your conviction for murder to manslaughter um you've you've come off of drugs um uh, 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 you know stopped using drugs while you were in prison so created a second chance for john crilly as opposed to john crilly the drug addict that that that's how people outside can sum you up but what does it mean to you when when you think about second chance second chance for these people listening to me paying a bit of attention to me not like a slapped ass little kid like i need and I'm around me 24-7, just people take, when you, when you are in meetings or you are having discussions, that like people really listening to you and not talking at you and having a bit of understanding, empathy. And yeah, back to the open mind thing, people need an open mind and try and get past stereotypes or we're never going to get anywhere. So yeah, I think it's just understanding and a bit of patience. I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? Well, what I thought was really interesting is that you said, you know, both the politicians and the police have lauded you as a, as a hero for doing what you did at, at, on London Bridge by tackling this terrorist who could have gone on to do do more damage. And if he was wearing a real um, suicide belt, could have killed many more people. And you were sort of praised at the time, you say, it only lasted for 24 hours as a hero. And it seems incredible that despite the fact that you are somebody who were convicted of a crime, you served your time, you come out, you turned your life around, and yet you feel that that, that second chance of being recognised for being you know, an ex-offender, if that's what they want to call it, has been taken away from you in some degree because people have questioned the fact that how can a hero be a convicted murderer or a person convicted of manslaughter. Did you feel that at all? Yeah, well, off the, off the bat, yeah, and, it's not, and it really isn't about money for me, yeah, but there was discussion in, within the, the peer group who was part of London Bridge, outside of me personally, who, who, who mentioned criminal injuries. They're not going to get criminal injuries. They've got criminal records, although they've suffered one of the most terrific, horrifying things that could happen to a person. 
straight up, straight off the bat, like, you can't apply for any like criminal injuries like a, no- a normal person could. If it was a normal situation and there was no criminals involved, I can just, I can only, I've imagined by now, I would have seen them guys down on one knee, getting medals somewhere. I just don't see, not that I've, I'm after anything of that, but I just, I just can, I, I can just imagine it going a totally different way. To, to how it has been, and not just because one of one of the three of us isn't a criminal, but I feel he's been persecuted as well because he's, he's in the middle of us. I, I suppose one of the questions a lot of kind of law-abiding citizens who see themselves over and above the law, or or or, or, or they they view the criminal justice system in a different way to maybe you and I and other people, they may question whether people like you deserve a second chance. Do you feel people like yourself deserve a second chance? Almost definitely, yeah. Um, I know deep. I know I, I'm not a bad person. I know I've had, I've just had. Sh- I could have been stronger. I could have been a lot stronger and de- dealt with it a lot better, but I didn't. But it doesn't make me a bad person. Weak, probably, but I'm not bad. And then. Um, it's only when, if you give me the strength to become stronger, if if, if you're just going to keep spitting at me and, and making me weaker, well, you reap the, re- what you sow in it. But if you can achieve me with a bit of um, compassion and understanding and give me a bit of strength, you know, belief in myself to grow, then the world could be so much better. Do you think you still need help? Yeah, definitely to a degree. Yeah, I'd only be a fool to to myself to of what I've gone through in the past to think I'm I'm cured and I don't need nobody. And I just I mean help just as in the other pat on the back now and again from probation and that or people who who are judging me still. And uh, yeah. Even and and support yeah supporting in job up job opportunities and education opportunities and stuff that kind of support I need. Do you think that you're doing enough to embrace that second chance by going out there and looking for these opportunities and doing as much as you can possibly do for yourself so that people can at least see that you're trying and and with a little bit more help. Things can change. No, no, I, I, I haven't been doing as much as I could have been doing. But like as we've discussed there, I reckon, not blow me up, but I have had a bit of a mad year. Do you know what I mean? I've had a mad couple of years, and and I'm just coming round from that. I think hopefully I'm in the right place. But yeah, I was in a good place when I got out, and, and I was released had my degree, and then. That happened and it has given me a bit of a kick in the ass again. When when you look in the mirror, John, having been through the journey that you've been on, you you, you know, as a young offender, uh, a repetitive offender, somebody who's been in prison, sentenced to one of the most hideous of all crimes, murder, long sentence over your red, drug abuse, um, like you say, torturous prison sentence because of the nature of your offence. So so you know you have those challenges always looking over your shoulder, but then you've got some small victory by having what you've always said recognised that you didn't kill anybody, even if they died on your game. Then you come out of prison, you go through this traumatic kind of terrorist experience, and now you're sitting on the sofa talking to me. But if you were looking in the mirror or somebody was looking at you, how would you describe yourself? Probably troubled, but determined. If you want people to take away one thing from this conversation, I suppose what I want people to recognise is that, you know, men like you who they think are bad have done great things. You've saved lives. Uh, it might have been that particular incident, but that alone is enough to to let people know that you could have quite easily turned the other cheek or just walked away and, and other people would have been injured. Regardless of what they thought of you, you've been able to show, even if it was an instinctive reaction, um, that, that there is good in bad people in, in their eyes. But if they were to take one thing away from this conversation about you, John, what would you want it to be? Maybe don't be as scared of criminals and criminality as 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 the 
the papers would make you believe that we're not all monsters and that. And like the cliche, we all have lovers and fathers and kids and things. We're not all animals. And I think the majority of criminalities are just lost, are uneducated, who are crying out for a bit of help and understanding. Maybe just reach out for once, maybe. I might just come back and save your life one day. So, yeah, that'd be it, I guess. Thank you so much for sharing your st- story. And I know at times it was quite emotive for you. Um, but thanks for sort of withstanding the the conversation and sharing your journey. Oh, yeah, like I say, I, was, I suffer a bit of discomfort if it help on the whole. So, yeah, no, thank you for having me. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allow you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited. Original music by J-Row Productions. Design work by Studio Minerva. And myself, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.